You can do more than pray, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. Uh, a little story, and I'm pulling this out of uh, Paul Koyster's devotional guide. This is different than the one I was mentioning a few weeks ago. This is following God, his will for your life. I believe we've got some copies of this if you're interested uh, there on the back uh, in, in the, t- the information table there in the back hallway. Henrietta Mears was a small woman with no formal theological training, yet she had a seminal impact on several of the most important Christian leaders of the 20th century, Lewis Evans, Bill Bright, Billy Graham, Dawson Trotman, and others. How did she do it? She herself attributed her effectiveness to prayer. Prayer, wrote Miss Mears, is surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me? Or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning of my will to the will of God. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, And I want to encourage us all uh, in that, to consider that and live that out and walk, pray with that in mind. May the Lord, even in our time together this morning, pull us closer to him. Let's prepare our hearts for worship. Over the course of our time away on our vacation, I was reading a bit on astronomy. I don't really know a lot about it, and whatever I learned in school, I can assure you I had thoroughly forgotten. And so I picked up a book called uh, Sticky Night Skies, I believe is what it was called, the sticky being the approach of getting it in your head and allowing it to stay there just a little bit. And I was particularly intrigued by what I was reading about the star Polaris. Now, maybe some of you know a little bit about this. I'm sure far more than I do. But the the, the reason that that star is important to, to have an understanding of where you can find it within the night sky is wherever you're standing on the globe, as you look towards the sky and you look and find Polaris, that's north. That's north, and that's worth knowing. That's worth knowing, not just in stargazing, because you can find once you find Polaris, you can find so many other constellations. It's also important as you're out stargazing, if you lose your way, because it is kind of dark, uh, getting back home. If you're, if you're lost, it's good to know uh, where Polaris is at night. If you're trying to make your way at night in the dark, maybe even intentionally, it's good to know where Polaris is, where true north is, and what direction you're heading. My understanding is fugitive slaves back during the American Civil War on their way trying to get up to Canada would use that very means of orienting their direction, Polaris, so that they would know what direction that they were heading in in the midst of the night. What's my point? My point is we need such a guide. We need such a star, something to orient our position so that we know what direction we're heading in and can head in that direction in a confident fashion. Without that, we are lost. We are but stumbling around in the dark, bumping into things, doing harm to ourselves and to all those around us. We need a way. We need to know the way we're going. We need to have a, a big picture we need to have a, an idea of the, of the full-orbed context of our lives so that we can know what kind of decisions we're to be making and what kind of questions that we should be asking. Well, here's the beauty, folks. 
My hand is on my Bible. That's what I'm pointing to, not my notes. We have it. Here it is. True north. The way laid out for us. Uh, this is part two in an introduction to our vision statement. That's what this is intended to be uh, this morning. And it's really along those lines in a, an excursus, if you will, just on the, the basic topic of decision-making and how Christians should go about that process. Um, the way we should go about making decisions. And again, as I said a moment ago, the, the, the questions that we should be asking that then orient us in the direction that we should be heading. We've already read from Psalm 23. I just want to read it again. With that in mind, um, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pray with me. Lord, when you stood there in the streets of Jerusalem in the midst of that great festival and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When we hear those words, that invitation, our hearts sing, for we are thirsty indeed. And you've made us in such a way that our thirst can ultimately only be slaked by the fountain himself and his word. We ask that you would speak now. Your servants are listening. Maybe not as well as we should be, but we're here. Not even sure how we got here, some of us, but we're here. We don't deserve to be in your presence. We don't deserve to have even a moment of hearing your word read, but your grace is evident even in that. We ask that that grace would be magnified all the more, and that not only would we have the opportunity to hear it read, but would you, by your Spirit, open up our minds and apply it deeply to our hearts, and in particular in this area of, of decision-making and choices and how we go about determining what and how to be and do. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 23. I'm not even going to attempt to exegete the text. That's not my intent. I, I'm really more wanting to, to operate with the image for a moment. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is our shepherd. The Psalm 23 says that he leads us, that he guides us, right? 
I think, and John alluded to this a moment ago, uh, in, in a way, I think we hear that psalm so much, and we hear this term that God is our shepherd, and we see paintings of these enigmatic hands holding little sheepies um, so much that we, we just take that for granted. We say to ourselves, well, of course he's our shepherd. What else would he do but be my shepherd, right? I mean, that's what he's supposed to be and do. I, I just don't think we appreciate the, the, the significance of, of what we're saying. When we say, the Lord is my shepherd. And in just the narrow uh, focus of, of just talking about his leading and guiding, and there's more we could talk about, but just that, that slice of it, that subcategory of, of shepherding care, of leading and guiding, I, I'm not sure we, we get it. The significance of what we're saying. Look, to, to say that implies not only that there's a guide, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about that, in this big, big world, in this big, big universe with stars called Polaris and Sirius and Vega and all kind that are just millions and billions of miles away, in the midst of that we have a guide. That, you know, that's significant. I could just say amen and we pray and go home. Just with that, if you understand the significance of that. But you go further than that. To say that the Lord is my shepherd, to say that He is guiding, to say that He is leading means it implies that there's a path laid out for us. It implies that there's a purpose that's been made for us, that He intends for us, that there's a direction in which we're going. You ever think about that? His, his intentions for us and His shepherding, His leading in, in that. The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about our chief end. The chief end of man. The first, it's the very first question. What is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, Thomas Vincent, in commenting on just what a chief end entails, says, the chief end of man is that which man ought chiefly to aim at or design, to desire, seek after, and endeavor to obtain as his chief good and happiness, unto which his life and his actions should be referred and directed. That's not to say that having a chief end, that's not to say that we're not to have any, any other aims or designs or desires or to seek after anything else. It's just saying that all other aims, all other desires, all other designs, all other pursuits need to be under the, that need to be lesser pursuits, lesser aims, lesser goals, desires, all those things under the larger one of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Every arena of life. This is a, this is a, this is a mega end. This is a chief end. It means that in every arena, in all areas, in every aspect of life, there ought to be some impact made by the fact that that's our end. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. That's why we exist, why we live and breathe and are on this earth. All of our decisions, getting back to the, the immediate focus of this, this message, all of our decisions ought to be ordered under that. The, the great and the small, the momentous and the minute, every, everything under this umbrella 
that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why, that's why the Creator made you. That's why the Provider sustains you. That's why your Redeemer saved you. To glorify Him. And enjoy Him forever. That's it. Which means we don't have to get up on a Monday morning. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking about you shouldn't set goals, shouldn't have a daily calendar. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that you don't have to totally write the whole thing. Because in a way you could say on my to-do list, the first thing that all those other bullets come underneath is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, that ought to have just a little bit of impact. I'm being a little facetious here. A little bit of impact on the crafting and stating of a church's vision. Right? It also, here's where my excursus for the morning comes in, it also ought to have just a little bit of significance, a wee bit of impact, on how we go about making decisions in our daily lives. Every one of us. So this has some impact not just on all of us together, but each of us as well. Where are we going Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday? The chart that we're, uh, that's being, um, the course that's being charted, that's what I wanted to say. Chief in, our chief in. Well, let me break this apart in, uh, in two ways. First, to glorify God. In Psalm 23, you get the sense of, the, of David's eyes just being riveted upon the Lord. This is what is, is preoccupying, in a, in a good sense, his focus to glorify God. God. Um, the scriptures speak of the fact that all creation was made to do this very thing. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. God's work of creation declares His glory. Who He is, what He's like. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm not going to read it right now. Go back and read it in the, yourselves in that extraordinary first opening salvo, that chapter that Paul writes there in Ephesians 1, where he talks about the wonders of God's grace and the in the extraordinary reality of his electing love. In the midst of all that, he says, what's the end, what's the purpose of it all? God's glory. God's glory. It's what's behind, it's what's driving off his work of creation, his work of salvation. Well, how do we fit in in all this? What, how do we, how do I, tomorrow morning, how do you, tomorrow morning, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, glorify him? What's it mean? Well, let me explain first of all negatively what it's not. It's not to add more glory to Him. Because you can't do that. You can't add more glory to a God who defines glory. You cannot add, More glory cannot be added, added. This is not a matter of adding glory. This is a matter of directing attention to Him. This is a matter of, of manifesting, of displaying, again, the wonders of who He is, what He's like, what He's done. Moving the attention off of self and onto Him. Letting that be the orienting principle of our lives. Letting that just erupt and grow from deep within as we see progressively, not exhaustively, for eternity, um, who He is, what He's done, Trusting in Him, turning to Him, leaning upon Him, clinging to Him, that's, that's to His glory. 
to His glory. And all it comes from deep within, goes out to all of life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 1 Corinthians 10.31, if, if, you, if you're uh, wondering, what should I star in my Bible, this is a decent place to start. Verse 31, 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. That's why we're here. It's what we're for. Our lips, our very lips, our, the reason He gave us tongues and vocal cords, and minds that would formulate words that would then speak ought to be as, as His Word is making its way and burrowing its way into our hearts. Our lips ought to be, in a sense, reflecting back and echoing forth praise to Him. Speaking aloud, and then just to steal a phrase, living aloud as well. This is not just what we talk about, about what we say in giving glory to Him. It's how we live in, in my character, in the works that I do. They ought to be reflecting something of His character and His works as well, such that the world would see and wonder. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, just after the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And if it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're here for. That's why we were made. That's why we were saved. To give glory to God in heaven. And it will be. All nations, all the world will see this one way or another. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an image. What an image. And it's coming, but it's meant to happen in some way even now through us. Let me tell you the story of a king. Let me read you the words of a king. Daniel 4. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. The words of a very famous king. I bless the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? You know what king that was? That's not David. That's not Solomon. That's Nebuchadnezzar. The mighty Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he had it right. But only after a time of him having it, shall I say, very wrong. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud, arrogant man. His life, his rule manifested it, his very words manifested it. He was warned. Nebuchadnezzar, Bubba, this is in the Hebrew, 
It's not all about you. Nebuchadnezzar spurned that warning. And in time, in God's timing, his kingdom was stripped from him. His mind was stripped from him. Read it. And seven years later, his mind was given back, his kingdom was given back, and then he spoke these words. Then he knew. Then he knew. What's this mean for us in terms of it being our chief end to glorify God? And, and, and honed in on the area of making decisions, the, the, the choices, how we go about muddling our way. It, it, it has to mean, at least this much, it has to mean that we don't start off asking, and I know none of us would really probably, I really don't think we would crassly, intentionally, cognitively begin this way, but I think we do more than we know. We certainly shouldn't begin with what path would lend most attention, most praise to me and exalt my name. You don't begin there. We need to begin with what path would most lend attention, praise to God and exalt His name. It's the orienting principle. Now again, that has something to do, not something, everything to do with the statement of a church's vision statement, but this is an excursus, so I want to talk about us, you, me, individually. Well, what about us, you, me, individually? At the crossroads, what, that in mind, that being the orienting principle, what choices will we make? What decisions, what paths will we take? What, what direction are we thinking we're supposed to be heading in? Because the choices we make ought to, be impacted by that. What star are we navigating by? What do we think true north is? What are we giving our life to? Or, or who? Going before the Lord and pleading, Lord, what will? What will most glorify you? How can I realize my purpose? What will, what will show forth how worthy you are of trust and might even necessitate all the more trust. What, what commands are you laying out that I need to heed? What would most honor you? What would show forth how worthy you are of your people's love and devotion? What can I do that would most imitate your character and your grace in my life? Why is this so hard? Because it is, isn't it? Our chief end is our chief struggle. And I find myself, and I know you do too, coming back, and that's why we, I chose the song that we did, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to sing thy praise because this instrument, oh, gets so out of tune so quickly to that 
theme, to that cadence. But he knows that. And so I can go to him again and again and again, we can, again and again and again, and ask him to do the retuning and bring me, us, together back. It's our chief end, the first half of it. The second half, to enjoy him forever. Uh, again, Psalm 23, you get the sense as David is, is, is writing what he's writing here, not just that his eyes are, are riveted upon this one that he is describing as, as, as shepherd, uh, preoccupied in the best sense, but his hopes are fully invested. His confidence is fully laid at the feet of this one who has promised to care in such ways. Um, what does it mean to enjoy him forever? Again, what it's not, it, this is, we're not talking about a, a narcissistic obsession with self. That's not what we're talking about here. God's not into narcissism. But neither is it neglect of joy. It's not an obsession with joy, but neither is it a neglect of joy because we have hearts that are hardwired to rejoice in God. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. His purpose for us is that we really would come to delight in Him. That we would rest in Him. I mean, really just put the whole of the, the whole weight of our confidence and hopes and everything in Him. That's where we find home. A lot of our problems could in a sense be described as homesickness in that sense. No other pursuits of joy will satisfy. Not ultimately. None but God, none but this one who says, taste and see that I am good. We are meant to see and savor Him. In Him we find an unshakable steadiness for joy. Because all others will fail. All others will, will fade. Friends, if you're, if you're thinking that friends, family, relationships are, are, are the, to be the focal point of, of joy in your life, they, that will fail. Health, beauty, money, possessions, those things will ultimately fade and fail. But God will not. God will not. And so joy can last. Deeper, deeper joy. Habakkuk. Again, I read from Habakkuk a moment ago. Let me go back there just... For a moment, if I, if I may, and I, I didn't say this earlier, but just to remind you what Habakkuk is about. Habakkuk is, is well, he begins with a complaint. Um, you know, Lord, the, what's up? The, the, our, our people are, are suffering. Would you please, uh, would you rein in the, the, uh, the Babylonians and, and rain down justice upon them? And, uh, and your people are so wayward and wicked and, and would you do something? And God says, yes, I will. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and sack you. And, and Habakkuk's not very happy about the solution. And so he then counters and says, Lord, what are you doing? And how can you do this? And, 
And God comes back and explains what he's doing and Habakkuk prays and he's as, as a broken and contrite and humble man. And then we read in verses 13, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread upon my high places. Lasting, deeper joy is and can only be found in God alone, in resting in Him alone. As we savor and find our, the deep satisfaction for our souls in Him. Psalm 16 Psalm 16, verse 11. I'm sorry if this seems like a sword drill. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I would, do you believe that? Let me just, I'm going off my notes here for a moment. I better not go very long on it. But do you really believe God is in the business of erupting joy within the hearts of his people? Or do you have in this, this, this image in your head of this sort of cold, sterile, um, I don't know, cosmic being who plays everything close to his chest and really isn't interested in helping you out and giving you anything. Should I just read this Psalm 1611 again? You make known the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. More. Now, it's not disputing the fact that there's brokenness and barrenness and difficulty, but it's talking about the, where the deeper hope is found here. Paul, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians and familiar with the course of his missionary journeys, Paul spent some time in, in jail. The book of Philippians was one of the letters that he wrote to a church from jail. Uh, New Testament scholars, time and time and time again, when, when they're pressed to say, what is the one word answer to the, what is the theme of the book of Philippians? You know what the answer is to that? Joy. He's writing in jail. All his plans to, to go out and spread the gospel and serve his Lord have been put on the shelf. He's in jail. It's not... Amnesty International would have been appalled, I'm sure, at the conditions. Okay? And he's writing of his own joy and commanding joy of his readers as well, who likely were despairing of his imprisonment as well. Philippians 4, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, Apparently we need to hear it again. I will say rejoice. Now that can only happen if your joy is in Him. Not in the cracked pots, poisoned wells, 
those waters will never satisfy. The slaking of the thirst has to come from the fountain himself. Again, back to the crossroads, our choices. What is your true north? Who or what are you resting in? What demands are you making of of your friends and family? That may seem like an odd question, but what are you insisting that they do for you? Give to you? I mean, you're you're put... In in what way has that become a crutch? Relationships. And how is the crutch being kicked out from underneath you? Why are you trying... Why why are you pursuing health? Why pursuing beauty? What do you think that next big score is going to bring? What are you pursuing as joy and who? We have one chief end. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That forever, I think in the sense that the Westminster Shorter Catechism authors intend is not just in the eternal sense, but in the deepest sense as well. That seems to be actually the way the, the concept of eternity is meant in, in the Bible. Not just everlasting, but, how will I say, ever going, ever reaching as well. Intended to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, that's my struggle. Again, my, and yours too. Our chief end is our chief struggle. The very thing we're meant to be heading towards, we run from. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my out-of-tune heart to sing thy praise. Prone to wander, I am and so are you. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I know I skipped a couple stanzas in there, but you didn't want me to sing it anyway. Um, That's our chief end. That's really all I want you to hear. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, I want you to hear me say two things. One, we have a chief end and what it is. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Life is like listening to a sermon. You scratch your head and you wonder, where is it going? This is where this is going. We have an end. We have a direction. That means there's significance to our days. There's significance to us. We matter. Our choices, therefore, matter. And our chief end is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. No more need of just stumbling and bumbling and getting lost in the dark and not being able to find our... There's no more need for that. We have the star by which to navigate. Alice in Wonderland. Where'd that come from? Well, it's a quote. There's a quote in your quotes and notes page there. Uh, you, I'm sure, are familiar to some degree with the story. Um, Alice is wandering around there in Wonderland, and she comes upon the Cheshire Cat. They're having this dialogue, and which way ought I to go from here, Alice asked. That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. It doesn't matter which way you go. Alice 
it does matter which way you go. It matters because you matter. That's good news, folks. It does matter where you go. Your choices matter, therefore, because of how you've been made and who you've been made for. We have an end and we have a purpose. This is not just this. I hope this convicts you. It does me. But I also hope it comforts you too. Because it really does mean that we don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder and work up, where are we going? What am I here for? Our Creator has made us with this in mind. Our Provider sustains us with this in mind. Our Redeemer saves us with this in mind. May this capture, may this chief end capture our hearts. All of us. All of us. Together. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are so easily out of tune, as we've been saying, and you've made these our hearts to sing your praise. Our hearts are wandering and they are prone to leave and to stray. We are too often intent on charting our own course mapping our own path, creating our own end, only to our own harm and to those around us, only to robbing you of the trust that you are due. You've made us. To glorify you and to enjoy you forever. These are big truths and it's big highfalutin language. It's easy to talk about and easy to dismiss. May it not be for anyone here. You've spoken in your word why we are. And we ask that you would continue to speak. Remind us. Bring these things to our conscience, our, the deliberations of our souls in the large decisions in the smaller things, all of which are under your gaze and your lordship. We're made for so much more, more than we know. Help us to see that. Why we're here and what we're for. In your name we pray. Amen. As a segue to the table. We ask oftentimes in, the, in connection with uh, guidance and decision-making, Lord, will you be my shepherd and my guide? And he is delighted to answer that with a yes and then a, a follow-up question. And that is, will you take up your cross daily and follow me? You see, our Lord's, our God's greatest desire for us, it's not that who you marry doesn't matter. It's not what career path you take doesn't matter. It's not what house you buy doesn't matter. It's not what stereo you do or do not buy 
doesn't matter. It's not, it's not that at all. It's just that what chiefly matters to him, what he chiefly has in mind for us his own, is that we would become more like his son. And that's good. But do you remember what the pattern is for Christ-likeness? A life of serving and suffering, isn't it? Is that not the path he has laid out, the pattern he has set before us, that we might become more like him? Service and suffering in his name. And we do that not because we're masochists. We do that because he served and suffered for us. That's what the table's about. That's what this is for. That we would be reminded of how he has served and suffered for us. And that we would be refreshed anew in how He suffered and served us. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He has served us. He has suffered for us. He is the suffering servant. The one Isaiah prophesied of centuries before his coming. If if this is the reminder you know you need. If this is the refreshment that your heart cries out for, if you have bowed before the true and living God as the source of truth, as the one who made you and owns you and to whom your very lifeblood is due, whom you have sinned against grievously and who has died for you despite yourself to save you for himself, If that's how you've bowed, this is for you. If you're not sure, if you're weighing this out, still wrestling this through, I'm so glad you're here. Come back. But please don't feel pressured in any way to take this bread and take this cup 
Don't lie. You don't want to do that. We don't want to encourage you. Please don't feel pressured to do that in any way. If there's any pressure you feel, I hope it's just to, to think about this just a little bit more. If, let me add one other thing. If, if there are things amiss between you and your Lord, um, some rift between you and a brother and sister in Christ in particular, you too, I will put pressure here. You need to let the bread go by and the cup as well. He saved you for more than that. And I would encourage you to run and make things right, uh, as they should be. This is really good. He loves us so. He knows us so that he would give us this reminder, give us this refreshment of his grace. Let me ask the elders to, uh, to come forward and join me up here on this front row.